Okay. As I said, tonight is our Nevins Freeman Award. And I think everybody here knows Mary. <laughs> and for better or for worse. Mary is our Nevins Freeman Award winner tonight. <coughs> and I think it's uh, long overdue. Well, thank anyway, you. Uh, thank you. Mary holds a BA in history from St. Mary's College. Probably hanging out with all those Notre Dame. <laughs> I tried. I tried. <laughs> it's another story. It's a long story. She was teaching at the College of Lake County, and I think uh, she said that instead of using uh, the microphone, because she's going to be using her hands and everything, she's going to use her teacher's voice. Yeah, I can do that. It'll uh, um, and she is vice chair of, is that in charge of vice over there? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Something like vice uh, chair. She's of the American Battlefield Trust and a director of the Safe Historic Antietam Foundation. Not that she likes Antietam, but I <laughs> no, no. Um, And of course, as you know, she is a past president of our roundtable. I think. You either just preceded or just just after me. I don't remember. What uh, I think it was. I preceded you. I did. Yeah, Your tour was right after mine. I think okay. we went to Shiloh after we went to Antietam in the early nineties. We weren't rained for three and a half straight days, but uh, but who's yeah, counting? Yeah. It was kind of a wet tour. It was it was a great tour. I remember. Yeah, except the first day we hit sunshine. Well, that was all. You can't you can't have everything. Yeah. All right. Uh, without further ado, Mary, the podium is yours. If Thanks. Okay. I'll lay it there. It's it's going to lay there probably. Right, Too much trouble to carry the hold the thing. Thanks, Kurt. Right. Thanks, Betty. Thanks. Let's make sure this thing is working. Yes, it is. There we go. Um, this is uh, this is an unexpected honor. It's it's a it's a really special honor um, to come from my dear longtime friends in the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. When I first went on my first battlefield tour to Chickamauga in 1983 and saw a water moccasin slithering around Crawfish Springs, I never thought I would be st standing here today. But Ed Bars told me to suck it up, so I so I did, and here I am. So 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 there is that. Uh, so. But um, all kidding aside, I'm very grateful to, to look around this room and see uh, the smiling faces of people whom I care deeply about, dear, dear friends who've been so good to me and so, so special to me. Um, I never expected it, and um, I'm very happy to be here. Now, without further ado, <coughs> let's talk about my favorite subject and hopefully yours, um, battlefield preservation. Um, we're going to talk about Wisconsin and Illinois to start out. I thought that would be good. It's not the Packers and the Bears, but um, there is that innate competition, so that's how we'll start. And we'll start about interstate rivalries. And those interstate rivalries between Wisconsinites and their Midwestern neighbors um, have been alive and well, we know, for a long time. And the great age of battlefield preservation at the turn of the 20th century was no exception. Um, you take, for example, the words of one Wisconsin veteran uh, who praised the state monument at Vicksburg, one of my 
my personal favorites there, as you can see, with um, Old Abe on the, on the top of the monument. Um, and this same veteran used the same occasion where he was talking about the monument to get in a not-so-subtle dig at Badger lawmakers whom he deemed to be a bit too fiscally conservative, and you can read that cheap. Um, his name was Private Hosea Rude. He was uh, from the 12th Wisconsin, and he was uh, the guy who compiled the report of the State Monument Commission about their work at Vicksburg, about their work commemorating and preserving Vicksburg. Um, in his remarks uh, on a, a talk that he gave that, that is in the State Monument Commission um, proceedings, it's published in 1914, so this is right around the turn of the 20th century, um, he talked about funding the monument um, in order to level his criticism at what he called frugal legislators. Um, but at the same time, he also appealed to his audience's civic pride. And I, this is the only um, relatively long quote I've got. So, but it, but it, it's, it's interesting and critical, and it brings Illinoisans in as well. Here's what he said. He said, while the bill for providing for this memorial um, was pending in the legislature, some people said plainly they weren't in favor of it. Uh, they didn't believe in spending so much money to put up a monument away down there where very few Wisconsin people ever would see it. But such objections did not prevail. Now that we have our beautiful monument at Vicksburg, it's doubtful that anybody objects that it was um, erected. It would not be to the credit of our good state to have no memorial to our 9,075 soldiers in the siege of Vicksburg while our neighboring states of Minnesota and Iowa and Illinois, as you can see that, we're all familiar with it, have dealt so generously with theirs. And it's exactly that kind of devotion to home and community as well as to country that actually drove the work of Civil War veterans, groups of veterans, as they remembered their experiences during the war and as they worked with the federal government to mark the battlefields of our first Civil War parks. Um, commemoration of the war, though, didn't start with the establishment of the very first Civil War parks in the 1890s. No, actually, uh, the, the urge to memorialize and to preserve uh, had its origins during the war years itself, themselves. Um, how and when? Specifically in the several instances of active duty soldiers like the men of William B. Hazen's brigade who established this monument during the war soon after they fought at Stones River. Um, soon after they fought at Murfreesboro. Uh, and they're not the only ones. There were active duty soldiers, um, Confederates actually, at First Manassas, who established a monument that has now disappeared. You can only see the base surrounded by poison ivy near a tree um, near the Stonewall Jackson Monument. So there, so there were, are a few instances of active duty soldiers during the war commemorating and monumenting. Um, also, we see the establishment of national battlefield cemeteries during the war um, at Gettysburg and also at Antietam. This is another way Way in which the work to preserve and to memorialize starts during the war. And finally, we see that urge to memorialize happening during the war um, in precedent-setting efforts of private citizens to mark and commemorate um, Gettysburg as a Union Shrine, a Union Shrine alone. Um, subsequently, though, over the decade and a half after uh, Appomattox, commemorative activity on battlefields um, continued virtually without Southern participation, and this is not too surprising as the battlefields healed and changed. Um, on the other hand, though, by 1880, Americans also had celebrated their shared revolutionary heritage um, during the centennial, at the time of the centennial. Maybe more importantly, by 1880, Reconstruction, with its military occupation of the South, 
and federal enforcement of Freedmen's Rights by 1880 Reconstruction had come to a close. So these were areas um, of national history and also racial politics where Northerners and Southerners could arguably find common ground. Um, and especially after Reconstruction, as veterans of both sides realized that they shared the experience of combat, that they were all members of this kind of a, sort of a, an exclusive veterans fraternity. Uh, and as they worked together in business and in industry and in politics, it became possible for battlefields to remind Americans, remind these guys of things other than grief and hatred. It also became possible for battlefields to serve other needs than simply remembering the Union battle effort, the Union war effort alone. The 1880s also saw this, this growing phenomenon of so-called blue-gray reunions, which were these celebrations of national unity in which veterans of each side publicly acknowledged the courage and the devotion to duty of their opposite numbers without necessarily conceding away the cause for which each side or their own side had fought. This is one of my personal favorites right here. You've got, it's, unfortunately, it's not real. This Here's Dan Sickles. Here's Longstreet. Um, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, Chamberlain is over here, and I believe that's Dan Butterfield. I'm sorry that it's a little grainy, but it's it's a terrific it's a terrific image of all four of those guys. Um, so there, this is a, an especially especially memorable one at Gettysburg in 1888. Um, these meetings began though on battlefields as early as the 1870s. They really picked up momentum both off and especially on battlefields during the 80s. With the coming of the war's 25th anniversary, then during the 1880s, battlefields gripped the attention of many aging and politically active veterans, some of whom significantly, and this is important, were members of Congress. So they were active and they were aging, they were aging but they were also active politically and they had money. So they had money and they had political clout and political um, capital. And as these individuals came together in the 1890s, this then became the time when these veterans became the key players in the drive to set aside to, to memorialize and preserve our first federal battlefield parks. And established by Congress in August 1890, Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park is our first federal battlefield park. Later that month, in August 1890, legislation that set aside funding for preserving battle lines and for buying land to mark troop positions uh, at Antietam provided the legal basis for what would become known as Antietam National Battlefield Site. Clearly, yeah, well, the, 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 it speaks for itself, obviously. Um, then, rounding out the five granddaddies, if you will, that make up the nucleus of our National Battlefield Park Network are Shiloh in 1894, um, Gettysburg in 1895, and Vicksburg in 1899. Um, interestingly, at a time when there was no National Park Service as we know it today, it didn't exist in the 1890s, and only a few other so-called national parks, um, like Yellowstone and Yosemite, both of which were, as we know, Western Wilderness Parks. At that time, uh, the Civil War battlefield preserves that were established during the 1890s, they set the precedent. They were the prototypes um, for all national historical parks of whatever name or whatever designation you were going to give them, um, of whatever description, going forward, period. So these turn-of-the-century military parks really are among the premier historic sites in the entire national park system, and they deserve that recognition. And that term military park, 
um, deserves some consideration here, in part because it was a title that was meant to confer status uh, the men of the, uh, by the men of the war generation who coined that phrase. Among them uh, was this individual, Henry Van Ness Boynton um, of Ohio, the 35th Ohio uh, Horseshoe Ridge with George Thomas. He was also the godfather of the Chickamauga and Chattanooga uh, mili National Military Park, and he was one of the originators of the whole idea, uh, the concept of the National Military Park. Boynton and Park supporters intended these these lands that they set aside um, as lasting memorials to the great armies of North and South in which they'd fought. Um, so in that sense, their, their goal here and their actions here were deeply personal, had deep personal meaning to these guys. On the other hand, though, there was a second purpose that was articulated um, by park advocates in their effort to win congressional approval. And that was the potential uh, pragmatism, the usefulness of Civil War fields as outdoor classrooms for study by historians and especially for study by professional military, by professional soldiers. This second rationale was a matter of political expediency. Um, it was a justification that was used by backers as they sought unprecedented federal fending not fending, funding, not fencing or fending, funding for battlefield preservation. Um, so an emphasis on the basic pragmatism of the military park idea became a key weapon for those who pioneered battlefield preservation nationally. And from that time to the present, uh, the government's historic battlefields have functioned as places for instructing all kinds of soldiers, both civilian and military alike. Um, additionally, besides the park's usefulness for teaching Americans about history and about waging war, among other things, there was still another side to the practicality of calling these first Civil War parks military parks. And this is uh, precisely, preservation advocates needed political support in Congress in the 1890s. They needed political support from both Northerners and Southerners. So to pat in order to pass establishing legislation for battlefield parks. However, open talk of things like slavery and secession and race and disloyalty and other such matters was capable of upsetting emotions that were still close to the surface in the 1890s. And if those topics had entered the debate about setting aside these battlefields, needed consensus could have been um, damaged significantly or it could have been lost altogether. So what was the solution? The solution was to eliminate even the possibility of controversy by avoiding potentially inflammatory subjects altogether uh, and emphasizing something about which there was no disagreement and that was the courage and skill of American soldiers, regardless of which side they'd fought on. So the name National Military Park, with emphasis on the word military, was an innovation, an invention, uh, I would argue, of the founding gen generation that highlighted the fighting ability of our soldiers. At the same time, it also represented an idea that was capable of uniting Americans in the 1890s rather than driving them apart. Um, finally, as sites where uh, the future warriors of the United States would learn lessons uh, from the past, these war the, the new parks were placed, not surprisingly, under the purview of the Department of War. Uh, this emphasis then on all matters military influenced how the founders shaped this core collection of Civil War sites. 
and as they focused on soldiers experience in combat and on maintaining a field's wartime experience the men who worked on those sites reconstructed the stories of great battles uh, and so under the supervision of the war department commissions of veterans from states whose troops had fought in specific contests and uh, this was initially union states a few confederates uh, some a few confederates during the early 19 sorry 19 yeah 1900s but mainly union um, those state commissions determined battle lines of their units and then they marked those lines and they marked those locations um, this is my probably my my favorite monument on every any civil war battlefield it's the this great iconography of the wounded line and we all know that it's uh, in the west woods or well the west woods interrupted by a, a bypass unfortunately but it's in the west woods at Antietam uh, I think the second the, the Wisconsin monument at Vicksburg comes in a, a close second so state commissions determined battle lines of their units and marked them with monuments um, and at the same time representatives of the Department of War in the form of three-man commissions uh, of Union and Confederate veterans marked battery locations with condemned ordinance we can see there on SD Lee Ridge um, near the visitor center the current visitor center Center at Antietam. Um, they marked um, battery positions with condemned ordnance um, and troop positions with cast iron historical tablets that told you the story of the battle action. Guided by the desire to tell their story on the land then, the veterans created spaces for remembrance and for military education that also reflects still today the heroic memory of the Civil War that prevailed turn of the century mainstream America. Um, the war generation faded away though and started to die out as, as all of us, uh, as we, we humans do. And as that happened, their movement lost some of its focus, some of its vigor, and especially a lot of its political clout. And during the first quarter of the 20th century, from 1900 to 1925, um, administrative problems within the War Department, ever-present fiscal concerns and money concerns, and American involvement in World War I slowed the creation of new battlefield parks. Um, with fairly small ones established at only two places from 1900 to 1925. And interestingly and notably, and not surprisingly in both of those cases, the acreage involved was uh, donated free of charge to the federal government by a private sector group. This is a theme that we're going to see repeated because preservation has to be economical. Um, those two parks, those two new parks from 1900-1925 were Kennesaw Mountain National Battlefield Site near Atlanta and Guilford Courthouse National Military Park in North Carolina, which was the first so-called National Military Park on a battlefield of the American Revolution. After the, the First World War and after the boys came home, you have this redirecting then of energy, you have this redirecting of energy toward domestic social um, issues and projects and um, domestic cultural issues and projects. And that time then sees really the first real movement toward establishing more parks of various names on sites of Civil War battles. And so during the period uh, of the late 1920s into the early 1930s, um, you have Civil War related parks of different names established at Petersburg, at Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania, at Stones River, at Fort Donelson, 
at Fort Pulaski, at Price's Crossroads, at Tupelo, and at Fort Stevens in Washington, D.C. And that's not all. You also have, at that same time, parks linked to other historic American wars are emerge at that time as well, including Morristown, New Jersey, Moores Creek, North Carolina, uh, Kings Mountain and Cowpens, South Carolina of the American Revolution, Fort McHenry, Maryland, 1925, the War of 1812, and even Fort Necessity in Pennsylvania of the French and Indian War. Um, it's worthy of note to hear that as Civil War veterans passed from the scene, um, it, you have groups of grassroots groups, you have groups of neighbor of of local boosters and local backers um, who play a more direct role in the establishment of battlefield parks during the 20s and the early 30s. So while the preservation crusade of the 1890s was driven by a very powerful veterans lobby, these guys are dying off. And the next big surge of preservation activity actually came in many cases at the hands of battlefield neighbors and battlefield boosters who promoted local interests, things like heritage tourism, and economic growth, as well as promoting patriotic values, which was what um, Civil War veterans um, had on their minds. Another common feature of parks that were established during the 1920s um, and early 30s was prevailing use of the so-called Antietam Plan in shaping those fields. The plan was so named because it had been the model for land purchase and development of the battlefield in Antietam since its establishment in August 1890. Um, based on the principle of economical preservation, the Antietam Plan called for the government, as you can see here, to buy narrow strips of land that corresponded to battle lines and troop positions and also gave access to visitors with the placement of tablets and markers and monuments on that land to tell the battle story and this bloody lane or um, the sunken road at Antietam is really an excellent an excellent depiction of how the Antietam plan actually works based on the belief that the area around Sharpsburg Maryland would stay in agricultural use indefinitely thus eliminating the need for a government purchase of big of large tracts of land at Antietam and Admittedly, these guys were this were Monday morning quarterbacking. They did not have benefit of uh, we have the benefit of hindsight. They did not know um, the Antietam method of limited land acquisition appeared to be uh, the best of all possible things to a variety of different people. It appeared to be the best way to mark a battlefield, open it to visitors, save money, and preserve an, an important historic site all at the same time. By contrast. The other four parks that were set aside with Antietam during the 1890s featured expansive tracts of land. And that's due in large part um, to the organized and politically influential and veteran-led lobbies that pressed and pressed hard for government ownership of big pieces of land, big parcels of land at Chickamauga, which was established in, in its establishing legislation. It calls for a park of potentially 7,600 acres. Um, and today it's, it's about that big, actually. Um, big parcels at Chickamauga, at Shiloh, at Gettysburg, and to a lesser extent at Vicksburg. Um, but as the old soldiers passed from the scene, it was the Antietam Plan featuring um, the acquisition of ribbons of land that embraced battle lines and provided access. That Antietam Plan was the, going to be the preferred way to preserve, to mark and preserve historic military sites at the federal level. And it stayed that way from then until now. After the turn of the century, with very few exceptions, and Pea Ridge and Wilson's Creek at the time of the uh, 
the centennial are among them after the turn of the 20th century with very few exceptions nationally preserved battlefields followed the precedent of commemoration and minimal land acquisition that was followed at antietam then with the 1930s you have this this watershed for battlefield preservation um, as executive orders issued in 1933 by president roosevelt transferred uh, those properties of the War Department, all of the historic <coughs> battlefields, uh, historic cemeteries, transferred from the War Department um, to the National Park Service. And the National Park Service, by the time that you get to the 1930s, was a fairly young agency of the Interior Department. It had been established in 1916 as the arm of interior that was going to take charge of and take care of the department's western wilderness parks and its few cultural areas it had a few historical areas in the east um, and a few in the west as well um, by the early 30s however the park service remained something of an underfunded stepchild within the larger um, bureaucracy of the interior department on the other hand though two of the park services early directors um, two of my favorite guys here although nobody's ever heard of them i don't think except except ed barson and a few people and people in the Park Service. And these are visionaries. They're the first two directors of the National Park Service. The one on the left is Horace Albright. The one on the right um, is his friend and mentor Stephen Mather. And these two individuals, for a long time, had insisted that with their agency's experience in park administration and in popular education, the National Park Service was the logical steward of the War Department's cultural properties like its historic military parks, like its Civil War battlefields. Now, the United States Army of the 1920s and the 1930s certainly was interested in its heritage. Nobody was casting aspersions on the U.S. Army. But the modern War Department of the 1930s had a lot of other things on its plate besides historic preservation. Uh, and the War Department at that time did not have the resources that were needed, think about it, to man battlefield parks in order to educate visitors who were neither veterans nor professional soldiers. But as attrition claimed the war generation, as the war generation died off, and as relatively affordable autos revolutionized um, travel during the 1920s, Americans who had little or no personal attachment to the battlefields, nor first-hand knowledge of them, increasingly were starting to see them as tourist destinations. So there's a real need here for some educational programming that the War Department wasn't necessarily equipped to provide. Additionally, pragmatists like Mather and Albright also recognized that the National Park Service, if it owned battlefield parks, all of, the, all of which were in the densely populated eastern United States, that had the potential to raise the Park Service's profile, also to expand its political base. So they asked themselves, rhetorically, clearly, um, who better to introduce these sites to the visiting public than an agency that had been developing interpretive programs virtually since the time it was born. And that question, interestingly, found a willing listener in the newly inaugurated FDR in 1933. Horace Albright, who was then director of the National Park Service, had a chance to chat with FDR during a Sunday drive through Northern Virginia, through the battlefields of Northern Virginia. They hit the Skyline Drive, obviously. They also hit First and Second Manassas, and this was in April of 1933. Um, Albright had wanted to make this change for a long time, and so he'd paved the way. So he was acting with the foreknowledge of War Department officials, with the Secretary of the Interior. So he approached 
uh, broached the subject to FDR about this possible change of the War Department's historic military sites and, and other properties, including its cemeteries, to the National Park Service. The president liked the idea. He thought it was a common sense, I think those are his words, common sense um, kind of fix of the federal bureaucracy. So he mandated the change. Executive orders went out in the summer of 1933, and those executive orders moved the War Department's Civil War battlefields, cemeteries, smaller related properties, um, as well as other sites linked to American wars to the National Park Service from the War Department. With that transfer then, the National Park Service, which already was known as the steward of Western Wilderness Parks. Everybody knew that that's what it was. But at that point in 1933, the National Park Service then moves into a leadership position of the entire National Historic Preservation Movement with the extension of its authority over about 50 historical properties in the eastern United States. Then of greatest immediate benefit, we're in 1933, so I think you can guess what comes next, of greatest immediate benefit to the expanded national park system was the birth of the New Deal. Um, starting in 1933 through 1940, Programs like the Works Progress Administration, the Public Works Administration, um, offered significant support um, to the expanded national park system, but the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, really was um, the main driver of the Park Service's Depression-era programming. All three of those agencies, the WPA, the PWA, and the CCC, improved infrastructure. Um, they built visitor accommodations in national battlefield parks. Uh, but again, over its nine-year lifespan, it was really the CCC um, that especially was critical to the evolution of the Ni National Park Service's educational programming in its in its wilderness in its um, in its history parks. Um, Besides doing basic conservation, basic land maintenance, um, as the CCC did at its Western Wilderness Parks and its scenic parks, um, the Park Service worked in battlefield areas like Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg, also Shiloh, also Saratoga, um, where they excavated artifacts, they restored historic structures, some of them even provided guide service, and they did that under the supervision of National Park Service of historians that were employed um, by the National Park Service using CCC funding. So the human and material resources that were provided by President Roosevelt's different um, alphabet agencies were real lifesavers uh, as the Park Service's rapidly expanding history function assumed a, a huge new responsibilities in historic site management and also interpretation for the visiting public. American involvement in World War II, not surprisingly, then sees um, the New Deal funding and the New Deal resources for the Park Service dry up completely. Um, social programming at home obviously took a back seat to the war effort. Um, the, then you have the persistence of low funding levels after World War II, some people would argue that that, that never came back, although of late um, there have been some encouraging signs. But um, so, so as you move into the post-World War II period, you do have this, this continuation of very low funding levels. You also um, have issues that are, are going to crop up, that have been cropping up even as early as the early 1940s. And this is where we get into more modern issues as in terms of development pressure.
Um, increasing pressure is felt by national parks uh, during the 1950s and the early 60s because Americans have rising disposable incomes after the war years. They have greater mobility uh, and they have more leisure time. And they also have this, the Interstate Highway Network, which went up in the 50s and, six, and early 60s, as we know. Um, and they're looking for more destinations. They're looking for tourist destinations. Um, so, and the timing was impeccable at that point because um, Americans love their cars um, and drivers are voters as well. Um, also, there were two landmark anniversaries to anticipate as you move through the 50s and toward the 60s. Um, and those things converged. The demand of Americans for tourist destinations, the fact that they wanted to travel and they liked to travel, plus the fact that the National Park Service was going to celebrate its 50th birthday in 1956. And the National Park and the National Civil War Parks were going to be celebrating the centennial of 1961 to 1965. So all of those factors converged um, to make politicians especially receptive to a National Park Service um, initiated, initiated or proposed initiative called Mission 66. What was Mission 66? Mission 66 was a 10-year visitor-focused development-intensive program that was instituted in 1956 to rehab the national parks after the neglect of the war years to get them ready for the 50th birthday of the National Park Service and to get the Civil War parks specifically ready for the centennial of 61 to 65. When all was said and done, Mission 66 came to a close in 19, in the mid-60s, um, Congress had authorized over a billion dollars um, in spending. And a lot of the physical and interpretive features that we take for granted today in Civil War parks were actually in place by the time that Mission 66 came to an end in the mid-60s. What kind of features? Features like these, like strategically located visitor centers with their orientation films and their bookstores and their museum exhibits with which we're all familiar. Um, it's sites like Antietam, uh, Gettysburg and also Petersburg. We know that the Mission 66 Visitor Center at Gettysburg is no longer there, and it's a good thing that it's gone because it had no business being uh, <laughs> at the apex of Pickett's Charge. Uh, yeah, that, that shouldn't have been there. Um, the, don't get me started on the, the one at Antietam because they're spending a jillion bucks. Uh, it should be down in someplace else, but but I digress. So at any rate, but these are, uh, and Mission 66, so just as a, a brief digression, it was all about tourists and their cars and making these parks um, um, special for the visiting public. So where do you put these visitor centers? Uh, you put them on the most prominent feature on the entire battlefield. So they put the Antietam Battle um, Visitor Center on S.D. Lee Ridge, where all of Lee's guns were. Uh, and they put, uh, they put um, the Gettysburg one. Where did they put it? There at the angle where Pickett's Charge broke. That one's gone, and, and good riddance, I say, but and the new one isn't half bad. The Petersburg one is something a little bit different, and it's actually pr pretty well situated because it's kind of um, it's camouflaged in the ground. But again, I digress. The other thing that you see, that you still see, and these are throwbacks to Mission 66, are these wayside exhibits. I think all of them have seen them and read them in National Military Parks and many, many of these. This one at Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania. Uh, um, many of these are, are throwbacks to Mission 66. I'm not sure that these are Mission 60. They may be. Um, they look like something a little more modern, but you get the picture. You get the idea. Um, the post-war period, besides witnessing, witnessing this, these kinds of... Um, 
I won't say advantages, but seeing this kind of help to visitors. The post-World War II period also sees what we witness today, and it's the beginning of what we witness today in terms of battlefield preservation, and that's development. And there were development threats started even as early as the 1940s, maybe in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, because you have, um, you have intrusive residential and commercial and industrial development moving inexorably into then rural and essentially isolated locations. During the late 1940s, Park Service personnel at Gettysburg and at Fort Donelson noted creeping development on privately held land next to park borders. Land that usually was significant in its own right. Um, the veterans, uh, uh, the Congress that established the boundaries, even the veterans who established the boundaries obvi obviously did not take all of the battle action into the congressionally mandated boundaries of battlefield parks. Um, this is a problem, this creeping development, that threatened each site's integrity, its wholeness in telling the story. Um, uh, another issue was in it were um, the intrusion into historic view sheds. Um, and we've seen that in many of the battlefield parks that we've gone to. You can stand in a battlefield and you don't necessarily want to be looking at residential development or a commercial development um, as you're staring off at a mountain that figured uh, intimate, figured well in the battle. During the mid-50s, you have this. You have the possibility of a housing development um, at the Piper Farm in the middle of Antietam Battlefield. And this is what points out uh, the real problems that face the modern managers of these strip-type battlefield parks that were shaped using the Antietam plan. And that was the issue of so-called inholdings. And we know what inholdings, um, inholdings are these private track lands pieces of privately held land inside of the congressionally manda mandated boundaries of battlefield parks over which Congress has absolutely no control. In view of all these pressures, though, Congress's longtime reluctance to fund the acquisition of battlefield land directly continued. And as Civil War parks lost their place in the sun, uh, with the end of Mission 66, and the anniversary observance, rising real estate prices, plus tight federal purse strings, did not bode well for the Park Service's ability to take a proactive approach to development threats near its military parks. Um, at the same time that Mission 66 and the Centennial ended, history also has the story of great men and events, and this is the longtime definition of which. Uh, Civil War fields were a prime example. That definition of history was under review in the 60s and 70s against, well, in the late 60s and on into the 70s as it, this is against the backdrop of the civil rights movement, which spotlighted minorities, spotlighted other neglected actors in American history. And as unrest linked, the civil rights movement, as well as Vietnam-era anti-war protests played out in cities all over the United States, the fact that the largest number of cultural holdings in the national park system were battlefields, that fact generated questions about the issue of balance in the national park system and about the relevance of park service sites to urban Americans. Um, so areas associated with military history were de-emphasized throughout the late 1960s and into the 1970s, even as federal funding to buy battlefield land continued to dry up. The fiscally conservative 70s then saw the addition of just one Civil War park um, to the National Park Network, and that was Monocacy in Maryland. It was added to the system, interestingly and maybe not surprisingly, in the bicentennial year itself, 1976. 
Um, and against that relatively unfavorable backdrop of the 70s, we have one of the most prominent fiascos in terms of intrusive development encroaching on battlefields generally and on Civil War sites specifically. This is a real case study, if you will, and it is the late and unlamented Get National Gettysburg Battlefield Tower, Inc. Um, providing a solid example of one of the most pressing threats confronting modern preservationists. This observation tower for tourists opened in 1974 on private land at the foot of Cemetery Hill. Uh, it was 300 feet high and so it dominated the surrounding landscape. I, I'm sure many of us remember, um, not fondly, uh, National, uh, what is it, How, what is it, the National Gettysburg Battlefield Tower, Inc. Um, prior to construction, the National Park Service, which obviously was working from a position of weakness, they had no control over what Thomas Ottenstein, the developer, was going to do. Um, they actually negotiated with the developer, with Ottenstein, to try and moderate the tower's impact. Clearly, they met with very little success. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania sued in court uh, to try to, with the backing mainly of local preservationists, environmentalists. They got nowhere. They lost everywhere. Grassroots opposition, interestingly, on a national level, um, never materialized either and so the tower happened um, we all know though hopefully that it went down 26 um, it went down 26 years later in the year 2000 in the waning days of the Clinton administration apparently um, the Secretary of the Interior Bruce Babbitt it, he wanted it to go down on his watch there was a boundary expansion of Gettysburg National Military Park in 1990 that took in the land um, 10 years later they actually got the money and, and authorized the acquisition of the tower 10 years later they got the money um, and through, um, and there was, uh, Ottenstein didn't let go easily, but eventually he did let go, apparently because he was ill. Also, the tower had been steadily losing money, which was probably more to the point. And so, and so the tower was demolished um, on July 3rd, uh, 2000, which was the 130, a, somebody help me, the 130-something, 137th anniversary, thank you, of Pickett's Charge. This is why I do history and not math, so, so there you go. <laughs> at, at any rate, um, so that's, that's that. Ten years later, 1984, what a difference a decade makes. Um, Ten years after the tower opened in 1974, another dispute involving the commercial development of significant land next to another major Civil War park began to evolve, but with a very different outcome than the one at Gettysburg. What started in 1984 uh, as a proposal by an East Coast developer named John Till, uh, Till was his nickname, Hazel, to build a shopping mall on 500 plus acres of historically sensitive land, the so-called Stewart's Hill Tract, next to the border of Manassas National Battlefield Park in Northern Virginia. That proposal of Till Hazel eventually drew nationwide attention as well as broad condemnation. It climaxed in late 1988, interestingly 34 years ago today, November 11th, 1988, um, when President Ronald Reagan signed a law that authorized federal taking of the entire so-called William Center property and that property's subsequent addition um, to, the nat to Manassas National Battlefield Park. Uh, so the question is, how is this particular success story possible? In the mid to late 80s, when only a decade before, opponents were unable to stop um, an equally horrific development at arguably the, most, the single most famous park, Civil War Park, in the entire country. Uh, in part, it was a simple matter of timing, I think. 
Uh, the Gettysburg episode happened during the early 1970s when broadly based centennial generated enthusiasm for Civil War history had dissipated. Also, when you have very vocal anti-Vietnam War protests gripping public attention and when the National Park Service, which was subject to very real, real budget constraints, also was focusing on developing types of parks other than those related to military history, especially urban parks in the 70s. But the story of battlefield preservation is one in which substantial popular sympathy, if not vigorous outright support, has upheld effective efforts at the federal level. And even though gov government's fiscal conservatism continued throughout the 80s um, and into the 80s, by, that, by the time that the Manassas Affair began to gain traction and attract popular notice, you also have a renewal of interest in the Civil War and in Civil War history that started emerging with um, the bicentennial of the mid-1970s, a renewal of interest in American history generally. And that renewal of interest in, in American history that emerges at the time of the centennial was drawing strength from the approaching 125th anniversary of the Civil War. Besides timing, uh, another, uh, there, and that's the Stewart's Hill tract. Sorry, I should have gone to that. Um, view from Stewart's Hill north to Bronner Farm. The property is the property from which James Longstreet launched his counterattack um, and in effect won the battle on August 30th, um, 1862. Um, besides timing, another essential ingredient here is this lady, um, the emergence of a group of dynamic local activists that was able to mine the vein of rising grassroots interest in the Civil War. Um, this is Annie Snyder, who was a Marine and who knew how to cry very well on camera when she was being um, questioned in Congress, and she did an excellent job at that. Um, and she, was, um, she was a real hellraiser, and she and her Save the Battlefield Coalition got the job done. Um, they were able to draw the support of a variety of, of very important interest groups, among whom were national preservation groups, like the National Trust, the National Parks Conservation Association. Also drew the support of influential journalists and other influencers, if you will, other shapers of public opinion. opinion. Also, significantly, they draw the support, drew the support of key politicians, especially members of Congress, Senator Dale Bumpers there and Congressman Bob Mrazek on the, on the right. Additionally, as they orchestrated a masterful publicity campaign, the Manassas Crusaders also took advantage of the very vocal American environmental movement, which was dedicated to conserving green space and our rural heritage, and so provided a natural constituency for advocates of battlefield preservation. And that kind of constituency, and that constituency still exists today and can be very helpful um, to the battlefield preservation lobby. So against the backdrop of the war's 125th anniversary, you have the convergence of all of these elements that creates a favorable environment for the pursuit of a preservation agenda uh, in a northern, one Northern Virginia battlefield. And ultimately, the public concern into which the Manassas movement tapped was enough to make a last ditch federal preservation measure politically feasible. However, at an eventual cost to American taxpayers of $134 million for the 542-acre William Center tract, this kind of adversarial, crisis-driven, last-ditch effort at nationalist expense wasn't going to happen again. That was one lesson of the so-called Third Battle of Manassas, although I think by now we've probably had about 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 battles of Manassas, but, uh, but this, one, this one is very real. Um, a related lesson of the controversy also is the importance between government on the one hand and the private sector on the other hand.
It was also clear that effective preservation efforts had to be based on anticipating problems rather than reacting to them. Going forward, reliance on strategic planning uh, was going to matter, not knee-jerk reactions to done deals. That was going to be crucial. And even in the midst of the Manassas crisis, as well as its immediate aftermath, promising developments along these lines in both public public and private sector heralded, um, really foretold the emergence of the modern battlefield preservation movement where we are today. Two key events in that process were, first of all, I love this one, uh, the 1987 birth of a national grassroots land trust devoted solely to Civil War battlefields. And that was the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites, or APCWS, in response to the desecration of yet another Northern Virginia battlefield near Manassas. And that was Ox Hill or Chantilly in Fairfax County. But before I move on to that, you have to love um, Will Green from left to right, Bob Crick, Gary Gallagher, and Dennis Fry. All of them had hair. It was brown. None of them had gray hair. <laughs> so this is, this is probably one of my personal favorites. There they are in a late 1990s APCWS conference. And so the APCWS is born. Um, and, there's, and there's the Chantilly Battlefield Association, other, some other key battlefield preservationists. I did not know Ed Wenzel. I knew Brian Pohanka. We all knew him. He actually talked to our roundtable about his work at the Little Bighorn during the 1990s, a fine gentleman and a wonderful scholar. And Bud Hall, who continues to haunt, um, ask, ask Bill Hub and Rob Girardi, who continues to haunt Brandy Station. Um, but they got the job done. And so APCWS forms in response to this desecration. Um, another key event that helped pave the way to the national, or sorry, to the emergence of the modern, modern battlefield preservation movement was passage of an important law. And that was the Civil War Site Study Act of 1990. And it led to the first comprehensive study since the 1920s of America's Civil War fields, their battles, historical significance, and threats to their integrity. Uh, as a direct response to the federal intervention at Manassas, the Civil War Site Study Act authorized the formation of a national commission, a group of historians and other experts to carry out the study that we just named, the Civil War Site Study Act of 1990, and then to, um, to comment to Congress and to advise Congress and to inform Congress about preserving and interpreting the sites. In addition to this legislative action, the creation in 1991 of the American Battlefield Protection Program, or ABPP, within the National Park Service was Interior Secretary Manuel Lujan's way of providing the staff support that would be needed by the Civil War Sites Advisory Commission in order to complete its study that was called for in the Civil War Sites Study Act of 1990. There's, there's Manuel Lujan. Um, and I think his daughter is serving, his daughter is serving in Congress yet today from New Mexico, New Mexican. Um, five years later then, in 1996, Congress officially authorized the American Battlefield Protection Program in law um, and expanded it somewhat. Um, and at the same time, this same law, uh, 1996 um, law that created the, that provided statutory backing for the American Battlefield Protection Program. It was established by Lujan um, as, obviously, Secretary of the Interior. It was an executive action then, but it needed to be established in statute, so Congress established it in, establishes it in 1996. Um, 
reauthorizations have followed periodically from now until from then until now. Um, at the same time, this law of 1996 also authorized um, grants, federal grants or other types of financial aid to the Park Service's existing and future preservation partners. Um, since the commission actually, at any rate, um, once the commission actually issued its report in 1993, ABPP's long-term mission at that point became helping state and local governments and private groups like membership organizations and foundations to carry out projects that were aimed at preserving and interpreting battlefield land. And although ABPP today engages in a variety of activities to fulfill its mandate, arguably the most well-known of those activities is its annual competitive grants program, which encourages investment in historic battlefield preservation by providing matching federal grants on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis to private sector entities and to public entities on local, state, even national level. What's more, the visionary Secretary Lujan um, knew very well, um, he knew that big-time federal funding for land acquisition was never going to happen. So he decided on the establishment of a private foundation to help finance the preservation of the vast battlefield acreage that was at greatest risk, uh, with an eventual focus on the 50 Priority 1 sites designated in the Civil War Site Study Act. So in mid-1991, the creation of the so-called Civil War Battlefield Foundation was announced by Secretary Lujan. It had an initial goal to be raised through corporate fundraising of $100 million. Um, by the year 2000, that goal soon was adjusted publicly to $200 million. Um, early the following year then, Congress passed the Civil, War Battle, the Civil War Battlefield Commemorative Coin Act of 1992, which authorized the sale of commemorative $5, $1, and 50 cent pieces. The money so raised through a surcharge on each coin were going to be used for preserving threatened battlefield land, and they were going to be used by that so-called Civil War Battlefield Foundation, which was renamed the Civil War Trust in mid-1992. So that's the genesis of the original Civil War Trust. In the end, um, not too surprisingly, neither funding from corporations nor from the sale of commemorative coins ever really materialized to any significant extent. Uh, and over time, the ABPP Matching Grants Program has really become the mainstay of the current American Battlefield Trust efforts, um, as well as the efforts of other private sector groups and governmental bodies. Today's American Battlefield Trust um, is the offspring of the 99, sorry, got ahead of myself, is the offspring of the 1999 merger of the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites and the original Civil War Trust. Um, the joining of these two organizations became at base a practical matter as both moved through the 1990s. Um, in order to deal with constantly emerging threats to battlefields virtually everywhere, um, and to do so in a timely and cost-effective and sophisticated manner, it was imperative for the preservation community, or at least I was told this, um, as represented by these two groups, to avoid duplication of efforts, to steer clear of appealing to the same donor base, and last but not least, to speak to Congress with one voice and one clear message. The merged organization was known at inception in 1999 as the Civil War Preservation Trust. It reverted back to Civil War Trust early in 2011. Again, this was mainly for pragmatic reasons, and that's mainly brevity and simplicity in establishing the identity. Additionally, and this is more recent, as an organization experienced in working with ABPP, 
and as an organization that was versed in pretty complicated and complex real estate transactions and land stewardship, the trust launched an initiative called <laughs> Campaign 1776 in 2014, eight years ago. This was in correct anticipation of Congress's expansion of the ABPP program to provide grants for Rev War and more of 1812 battlefields whose historic significance, whose historical significance and endangered status was determined by a more recent um, congressionally authorized study comparable to the original Civil War site study of 1990. This one happened, I believe, in 20, yeah, 2007. The trust remained focused on Civil War battlefields at that time, um, but Campaign 76, that project allowed the application of established funding mechanisms uh, and preservation procedures to benefit other, obviously to benefit other important historic battlefields as well. Finally then, in May 2018, with Campaign 76 having preserved about 670 acres at that time of Rev War and War of 1812 battlefields at places like Brandywine uh, and the Siege of Charleston and Princeton, Maxwell's Field at Princeton, and with key stakeholders trust members chief among them voicing support for the idea in May 2018 the trust board made expansion of its mission official by rebranding the then Civil War Trust as the American Battlefield Trust and again this is in May 2018 uh, as it emerged from the Manassas crisis of the late 1980s the contemporary movement preservation movement has relied on the cooperative model none of us can get this done alone so with that as the mantra, national and regional and state and local membership groups work in partnership with each other uh, and they also co collaborate with government bodies at basic at various levels. This public-private partnership really is the core of the American Battlefield Protection Program uh, and especially the public-private partnership is, really matters um, locally because it's at the local level where zoning decisions and other determinations that are made by local authorities have uh, affect and affect significantly historic battlefield land. Um, another factor here, uh, and I think it's interesting, um, even though developers have been a thorn in the side of uh, preservationists for a long time or in the past, an invaluable asset to the current preservation movement can be a developer with will and with imagination. And one case in point, just one, I promise, and that is the trust's first day at Chancellorsville. This is a project of 2002 to 2005 in which the trust's invaluable eventual partners were two developers. Who were they? Um, a sympathetic local company, which is called Tricord Development, and the Toll Brothers, which is apparently a national builder of luxury homes. And Toll Brothers was willing to compromise with preservationists. Another key ingredient here, and you see this here with our friend John Hennessy, who's leading a tour of the threatened property in 2002. Um, another key, in addition to cooperative developers, was a strategically sound and masterful public relations program, um, uh, public relations uh, campaign that focused on um, so-called smart development and that generated a lot of political cover for local officials who were willing to favor that smart development with its preservation component. Um, in the end, 
Um, what was the result? In the end, 140 acres that were critical to telling the story of Chancellorsville's first day. And these were acres along today's Route 3, busy Route 3, also known as the Orange Plank Road or the historic Orange Turnpike, Spotsylvania County. That's, that once threatened 140 acres was, was saved by 2005 with another 74 acres preserved in 2006. Finally then, in addition to the collaborative model that I've just briefly touched on, another basic tool for the modern preservationist arsenal, one that's definitely not new, that, but one that in, uh, gets increasing attention these days, um, has been the fiscal argument. Uh, protected battlefields are economic engines that benefit local communities through heritage tourism. And the best part about this one is that it's clearly quantifiable for politicians and voters and taxpayers. In the end, to tell the story of Civil War battlefield preservation is to trace the ways in which we've commemorated the war, responded to its, responded to its tough issues, as we're still doing today, and use that past to deal with the present. Over the years, battlefields have been many things to many different people. They've been places for grieving, for remembering, for contemplating, for learning, for arguing, for driving a local economy, and places for recreating and more. And one of the things, though, that, as I see it, never seems to change is their ability to grab our attention and our concern. Um, for did they not bring us all here together tonight? Thank you for your kind, kind attention. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being, thank you for being, thank you for being good marathon listeners. I really, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, you can all go home now. It's, it's, it's all good. Uh, and I'm very appreciative for all of you being here. Thank you again so much. There's no pub quiz, I promise, and there's no homework. No essays, no nothing. Yeah. Anybody have any questions for Mary? There you go. Yeah, go ahead. Are yeah. you the first woman to receive this award? Uh, no. Um, Jean Baker, who was Mary Lincoln's biographer, won this award. Um, if somebody, a historian of the round table can help me. Pardon me? It's been quite a while. It's been quite a while. Um, so I'm, and I'm not, and I think, I don't know if there's anyone else who's any other woman, but Jean Baker was. And I was lucky enough to hear her speak and she wrote a masterful biography of Mary Todd Lincoln. I don't know if there have been any others that have replaced it or have taken its place, but um, she did. But yeah, so I, I would be the second. But that's good, we try harder. <laughs> Thanks, yes sir. You know, tough question for you, but you mentioned in the assessment of, of battlefield preservation that sure. 1960s, mm -hmm. 70s, look at the demographic, okay? Consider what's happening in society today. Sure. Cultures destroy monuments, right? That's revisionist history. What's your forecast for battlefield preservation? What's your forecast? What's the future look like? And, and what do we do to get a different demographic attending well, Civil War Roundtable too? Well, that's that's a, I have no I have no response to that question. This is a question that comes up in this roundtable. It's a question that's come up in the American Battlefield Trust that we've talked about. I mean, I mean, all of us are aging. And when that crack I made about gray hair, mine's hidden. Uh, and only my hairdresser knows for sure. But, but your point's well taken. And I think that, I mean, I see promise in some of the things, just that some of the things that we're able 
able to do at the trust we have a, like a youth leadership team we we get teenagers together to do projects and and they're they're very enthusiastic about it. these are 16 and 17 year olds who don't think history is boring um, we have fine teachers um, uh, part of our who come to our teacher Institute and they and they are carrying the message out to their students who are very enthusiastic as well so I think that it's up to us to to you know to send that message out there with our own families um, as far as what schools do and and how they teach I mean there are other teachers here and we do the best we can um, and I think battlefields are the best teachers and there's plenty of, of good local organizations like the Save Historic Antietam Foundation or um, or or other groups that are escaping my I'm sorry I can only think of in of Schaff <laughs> and I do apologize for that but but we do have we have the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation we have the Gettysburg Foundation we have these great local organizations that do all kinds of outreach and outreach is really critical and it's it's in, in contingent on each one of us to do that I think anybody else want to speak to that bill or Rob bill is a my co bill is a, an old friend and also um, a, a colleague on the board of the American Battlefield Trust with me so he can go ahead yeah and I got my start with um, it's recognized by the, the trust and honest and a trustee now in large part because of all of your efforts the Salt Creek Roundtables yeah Those who care about the battlefields have been going there, have been working at it for a while. I do want to, and I'm standing up mostly because I think Mary deserves uh, some recognition Ugh, here thanks. Uh, as being one of the people who helped the trust get into the education business. And that's actually formally now part of our mission where it we is. are we preserve, educate, and inspire. And, and of course, the battlefields and the history inspires us. So I think part of the answer is trying to get to a point where, where we can inspire people. So we've done a number of things, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I've been a strong supporter of the, of the educational aspects of the trust since I got on the board, and helping helping Mary and Annie. You plenty on your. And I think um, uh, Gary Edelman, who you met, and you have, um, have, have heard speak. He'll be here next he month too. Lunch, yeah. There have. That, that have had to be overcome. I mean, Gettysburg was, a, was run by the military. Gettysburg National Park was run by the military, and they ran tanks all over that yeah. place. Yep. During World War One, it was a tank. Yeah. It was a tank training yeah. camp. Yeah, it was. It was. No time for that. <laughs> all, have, all have a preservation history to them, which I think most of us would find uh, interesting. Too. It is. Um, I do think that we tried a lot of things um, uh, in the education world. Uh, we, we operate on a, on, a, on a small budget. We try to be as efficient as we can. I know you guys all wait to see what the match is going to be. <laughs> and, and David Duncan is quite aware of that and always tries to make that happen at least a couple of times during the fourth quarter when, when everybody's thinking about their charitable contributions to the end. And I think that um, the two things that I would bring up that have been extremely successful and continue to be successful are number one, in four uh, videos that we do. In four minutes, we 
take a little chunk of the Civil War history and we get it out there. Those have been used in classrooms, in the full classroom, since we since we first brought them out. Uh, and, and the teachers are all over that. So we argue to the extent that there's time in the school uh, uh, function, in the school day, to cover the Civil War, you know, they, they, they're able to use those tools. The other thing I, that you may want to take a look at, at the website for is something called the Generations Program. And I find this really inspiring. It's, it's a program where, and again, unfortunately we don't get to participate in it directly here, but if you want to do this, if you can do this, look into it and try to, and try to, and try to hook up with this. This is where a, a grandparent or a parent or an uncle or anybody can take a younger child to a battlefield and have an on-battlefield experience. Gary does a great job with them. They get to reenact a little bit. They get to, you know, they get to experience the battlefield. And so there's, there's an opportunity there for those of us to bring along those yeah. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. I hope that I hope that was a, some something of a satisfactory response. Thank you. Hey, I've known Mary for about forty years. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She doesn't just talk to talk. She walks to walk. Oh, Mary thanks. Was the original chairman of this organization's Battlefield Preservation Committee. Right. Uh, every dollar that you spend on a book for our raffle. She didn't start that program, but under her leadership, oh, the thank you. Preservation Committee and this roundtable became a formal part of the roundtable. It did. And under her leadership for many years, oh, thank you. we raised tens of thousands of dollars. We did. For Mary. this group. Mary. For this group. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> sure. Go. Yeah, the, lawyer want want, the lawyer wants to yeah, say right. something. The lawyer wants to say something here. Uh, <laughs> With respect to younger younger kids and how we get them interested, you know, Dave Keller, who we lost, was uh, working at uh, in the inner city at uh, Camp Douglas. He was and was doing excavations there, and he had kids from the grammar school. This is and this is great stuff. City. Yeah, helping with the excavations at Fort Douglas. At Camp and Douglas. he reported and showed us photos and whatever that they were actually very interested in it this is not something that is only for us people who have reached a certain age <laughs> no um, it isn't the, the 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 issue that we have is how we reach these kids and people who are younger uh, and I don't know the answer to that, but they are there. Well, that hands-on kind of experience matters, yes, and, and the, be the best, we, better we can do, and the more we can do with that, the better off we're all going to be. Is, yeah, yes, and uh, but but we, we we need to reach them if we're going to bring them into this organization. But I keep seeing uh, more people coming into the organization, and I hope that continues. And I hope you bring your kids along <laughs> and your grandchildren along, and uh, indeed. You know, let's, uh, let's we'll get see it if done. we can reach out to the... We'll do our but, best. But I just, I, I just, you know, the, the, the thought of Dave Keller and the, and the kids doing the archaeological work... And that's the deal. ...is what, is what struck me while you guys were talking about that. Well, and you're so absolutely right. I wanted to butt in. Um, no, I'm, no, I'm very grateful that you did, because that's, that's right on point. It really is. Thank you again, everybody. Okay, good. any other questions? No, that, I think it's, it's time for everybody to go home and go to bed. Oh, so let's, no. let him, let's, let's let them go home and go to bed. Not yet. <laughs>